welcome to the FearCast. This is the podcast dedicated to anxiety, OCD, and getting your life back. My name is Kevin Foss, and uh, and I'm a licensed therapist specializing in OCD and anxiety spectrum disorders. Thank you so much for joining uh, joining us for this uh, episode number 16, the Q&A session, the Q&A episode. So before we even begin, I just want to point out that uh, I'm recording in a different room. This is a little bit more behind-the-scenes stuff. I'm recording in a different room uh, than I normally do, and I'm, I'm actually using a different mic than I normally do. I'm going to try to uh, uh, dampen some of the echoiness of this room um, that I'm in. We, we, we just moved this past weekend, and uh, we're in this room, and I've got nothing up on the walls. And uh, for anyone out there who does any recording, um, I've just got my voice bouncing against the walls. If you've ever been in like a like an empty uh, empty house or an empty room, uh, there's that echoey sound, uh, and it bugs me to no end. But you know what? We've got to record anyways because uh, Monday's coming, and um, I like to re- I like to release the episodes on Monday. So for any audiophiles out there who are just annoyed by this sound, I'm annoyed by it too. Um, but we are going to get through it. This is actually a pretty good time to point out the difference between um, phonophobia and misophonia, if you've ever heard any of those two terms. And um, uh, I I think both of those would be reasonable to do a full episode on each. But uh, uh, briefly, uh, misophonia, I can't believe I'm talking about this. This is not what I intended to talk about today. Um, Misophonia is when you have, uh, is when you hear sounds that just bug you to no end. It just grades on your soul. Um, a lot of times phonophobia, uh, people experience phonophobia with like uh, fingers on a chalkboard. Um, uh, I will get this sometimes if someone is chewing too close to me, like uh, uh, if someone's chewing, like my wife will chew carrots next to me and it just kind of just, it's just it's awful sound. Um, some people can't stand uh, uh, the sound of uh, cars screeching. Um, some people just find innocuous sounds awful. So that, that would be misophonia. Phonophobia is sounds that you would hear or are sounds that you would hear um, that cause some type of fear. So phobia, there's that part of it. Misophonia, it makes you miserable. Phonophobia, there's a fear related to it. Um, with phonophobia, you would have you would hear something and it would trigger just like we've talked about before with the OCD cycle or the anxiety cycle it would trigger this feared story about what that sound means or it would trigger a thought um, that would make one feel uncomfortable so that person would then try to avoid that sound because they're not avoiding the sound they're avoiding what that sound represents or what they fear that sound means um, so I experience misophonia with bad-sounding podcasts, um, which I've, I've, I've hopefully done my best to make this one sound as good and as professional as possible, um, but obviously I could do better, but... Um but I'm not a pro, so I'm going to do the best that I possibly can. So, as I mentioned at the very top, um, today we're going to go through some question and answers. I was looking through the questions bank that I have, and uh, I've, I've got I've got quite a few that I can go over. So I just want to take this episode to go over a few of those questions. Now, by the way, I should mention to anybody, any new listeners out there, uh, my goal for this podcast is to be uh, a, a place where folks can, uh, where listeners like you can email in questions about uh, phobias, fears, anxieties, uh, stuff that makes you nervous, OCD, OCD-related stuff. 
stuff. Um, anything that makes one afraid or scared or uncomfortable. Um, and I want to talk about those things. I directly want to address those concerns that you have. For the past bunch of episodes, I haven't had a question in. Uh, I've kind of been going over some uh, um, uh, some specific topics, um, and, and you can go check out those old episodes. But um, if you have a question about anxiety, phobias, or fears, you can email those in to me. You can actually go to the website fearcastpodcast.com, and you can uh, uh, message me a question there if you go to the Ask a Question link. You can also give me a call. Um, you can leave a voice message on my phone. And by the way, for folks who are outside the United States who don't want to make a phone call to a 714 area code, um, you can record it onto your phone or record it into a file and email it to me at questions at fearcastpodcast.com. So that would be one way to get that question in. And uh, likely speaking, I'm going to push those to the top of the list of things that I want to answer because uh, I think your voice is a lot more interesting than mine. Uh, if you do have a question, uh, please go to the, the the website as well and just kind of read through the uh, terms and conditions of, of, of asking a question, just so you know what you're getting into. It's going to go on a podcast that goes around the world and probably into space. So something to think about. Okay, on to the first question. Actually, so this first question is asked through Instagram. So I do have an Instagram you can find me at, but uh, that's a separate conversation. So MJ asks, Hi, Kevin. Is it common to have multiple OCD thoughts? Seems like I can have an intrusive thought, and then there might be another one that creeps in. And now it seems like the thought I had before is not really important enough to keep in my head, and the other thought that took over becomes the focus. Hope this makes sense. Uh, so, MJ, uh, yes, it does make sense, and um, it's extremely common. Uh, it's super common. I feel like I've, I, I have my—I might have addressed a question like this on a previous episode, um, but for new listeners, um, you might also have this question. And this is a question I actually get a lot from a, a lot of my clients. Um, they'll, they'll notice, they'll, they'll kind of talk about in the assessment, you know, they're coming in for HOCD, but they'll say, you know, when they were younger, they had hand washing concerns, contamination concerns. Um, they'll talk about how they, you know, they might have been afraid of failure in high school or college. Um, and that's kind of developed more and more into kind of a, a, a fear about failure within the relationship. And it kind of um, focuses on kind of a, a, an ROCD flavor, or it can be, um, scrupulosity can can uh, grow and develop and shift and shape throughout one's life from from moral to religious and then back. So having having obsessions kind of flip flop is really common. And one of the reasons to consider why it's really common is because OCD and anxiety is a pattern of thinking and is a style of thinking. It isn't the content uh, that that you're worried about. So a lot of folks get hung up on the content. Of their fears. So whether or not they're gay, whether or not they have cancer, uh, whether or not they're going to run somebody over, whether or not they're going to kill themselves, uh, which is an obsession we can talk about later. But it's a it is a common thing that that folks get wrapped up in the 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 thoughts specifically, but what we're really looking for is the cycle of thinking, the, the pattern of thinking, which is that OCD cycle we've talked about before. It's the, it's the obsessive thought, that feared story that goes through your mind, which leads into the anxiety because the outcome of whatever that feared story is you just don't like, so you're going to try to avoid that as best you can. The way one usually does that is through compulsive behavior, either through avoidances or ritualistic behavior, or through asking for reassurances or through avoidances. And what that often leads to is that relief that one finally gets, but what that does is it just reinforces this thought in this story, and it says this thought was worthy of attention and worthy of your time. 
So we're, we're looking for that because what sometimes happens is we have a fear. Maybe maybe it's contamination. Let's go with that. That's a kind of a concrete one. Some will have, have spent years and years washing their hands, being really concerned about whether or not they're going to get sick, get, it, get other people sick, et cetera, et cetera. But they find that either they go through treatment and that fear uh, fear resolves through doing ERP, or sometimes we just grow out of it. Sometimes that fear starts losing its excitement or, or our anxiety starts um, getting bored with that thought. And then some people will report, ah, it just kind of went away in high school or it went away in junior high. And then they experience long stretches where, where they don't experience OCD or, or significant anxiety or clinical anxiety for, for a long period of time. Then they might have an incident, they might have uh, a triggering event, uh, or it just might, they wake up one day and all of a sudden, they are now worried about X, whatever X is. And now it feels like it's a brand new fear. It's not a brand new fear. Yes, it's a brand new content of the fear, but it is the same anxiety cycle. Think about anxiety. For those of you out there who ever did Mad Libs growing up, OCD is Mad Libs. That's really what it is. Anxiety is Mad Libs. It is... Um, it is feared story. If blank, then blank. I then I feel afraid. So in order to feel better, I do blank. So if you fee, if you fill in those blanks, you have a brand new fear. But again, it's the same Mad Libs story. That's what we're looking at. So is it possible? Is is it uh, common for uh, these thoughts to switch and, and flip flop? Yes, it is. And I would anticipate. I would have you anticipate that over the course of your life, whatever your fear is now is likely to go away, and then it's another one is likely to pop up. But to not get wrapped up or ticked off or, or afraid that this one's brand new, but say, oh, this is the same thing. How can I identify the OCD cycle in what's happening right now and treat it just like I did the other ones? So I hope that answers your question. Thank you so much for it. All right. My next question comes from AJ, and this question was asked through the uh, through the Fearcast podcast website. So thanks, AJ, for visiting the website and uh, submitting a question there. So uh, they ask, "Hi, Kevin. I first discovered your podcast today. Wow, it's really hitting home. I knew something was going on with me for years, but I hadn't really considered OCD. Listening to your show gave me an aha moment." I'm starting online counseling on Monday, and your show has been a great primer. Well, thank you. Um, my question to you is, can you tackle how OCD affects paranoia or vice versa? I'm also interested in hearing your take on how OCD is related to dissociation or has led to lapses in memory. All right, AJ, thanks so much for that question. Um, a, a, a lot of stuff in there I want to try to get to, and I'm, and I, I'm probably going to be missing stuff. Um, if you're in the room with me, I'd probably be asking you a whole bunch of other questions, but I'm going to try to do my best as always. So to your first question, um, how does OCD affect paranoia? Well, um, OCD and anxiety will often beef up and boost our, our natural level of paranoia. So one thing to remember, or one thing to think about, actually, is paranoia isn't all that bad. We we have this inbuilt thing within us, this inbuilt function, uh, that, that we are paranoid, uh, again, to a certain degree. And to a certain degree, it's remarkably helpful. Paranoia, you can think of as a hyper-awareness of our surroundings and just kind of a, a, a over-attention 
or just regular attention to potential threats that are out there because your brain and your body don't want to be hurt. So our brain naturally, part of its full-time job is to keep us alive and to keep us healthy and to keep us safe. So why would it spend any amount of time thinking about stuff that's happy and fun and safe? That stuff's boring. That stuff's not going to hurt us, right? Um, having de- having a delicious meal and having everything go fine is great. G- having a relationship that uh, that lasts through the course of your lifetime, where it's just this you know lifetime lifetime uh, uh, um, fairy tale, well, that's great. We all want that, but our brain wants to keep us alive, so it's going to naturally focus on stuff that could hurt us or could harm us. Now. It's, it's going to think about little things that could harm us, all the potential scenarios. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Inside Out, and by the way, I'm just going to encourage across the board, everyone should go see Inside Out. It's a fa- it, One, it's a fantastic movie. Two, it really illustrates the different elements or different emotions that we have. And I really want you to focus on the fear character. There's one scene where when Riley is going to her uh, her new school, her first day, um, fear comes in and, uh, and and has a whole stack of potential scenarios of all the awful things that could happen. And and by the way, it, it is it, so while it's this giant stack, um, the the one thing that happens to Riley wasn't one of the things that fear had considered. Naturally, of course, all of us who are listening have experienced that. It's nonsense, anyways. Um, So our brain is going to think about all the potential threats and it's going to be presenting it to us. It's going to be kicking it up to our to our conscious awareness so we can look out for it and just kind of say, all right, I'm gonna it could say, you know, there's a pitfall up here. Just watch out for it. It it could harm you. So we 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 want this in our life. What OCD and anxiety does is it takes our attention to that and either boosts it up so we we focus on that voice way too much. Or you and I turn our attention to it more while we disregard all the possibilities that it could go just fine, or it magnifies the importance of that voice in our mind. So how is it related? It it turns a magnifying glass to this natural thing in our brain and just makes it more prevalent. But that paranoia shouldn't be feared. That paranoia shouldn't be uh, um, something that we run from or we try to or, or we consider successful treatment as getting rid of that paranoia, but rather boosting an awareness of our paranoia, a tolerance of that paranoia, and, and kind of a, 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 an honoring acceptance of that paranoia that it's part of our life, it's there, whether we like it or not, and it's just going to kind of be there. But just because we have that paranoia doesn't mean it's right or is going to happen or needs to dictate all of our actions. So, on to your next question, you were asking about dissociation and lapses of memory. So, um, I, I, I would first want to know if you're talking about like kind of an out of body experience. Some folks will describe when they get really anxious that they feel um, uh, disconnected from their body. They feel outside of themselves, or they they have this. It's kind of this ambiguous feeling that we get in our body and our brain, where it just feels like we're not really there, but we're there. Um, some folks will describe kind of floating above themselves and kind of a, you know, like you hear in, in cheesy movies where someone died and they're floating above themselves and they saw their body lying there. I don't know, whatever the heck that is. But so I don't know if it's that that you're talking about. 
But regardless of, of, of what is happening, I do want to say that senses of dissociation and lapses of memory just across the board for people who have anxiety or the, the normies out there who don't have anxiety, um, I laugh at that um, for many reasons. But the the sense of dissociation is actually really, really common. It's something that you and I naturally experience. Think about this. You've heard about people zoning out. That's dissociation. That's when we disconnect. And our, our brain just kind of wants to take a break. Just wants to say, you know, I've had enough of this uh, stimulation that's around me. I just kind of need to just kind of step back for just a hot second. And that feeling of zoning out can be a sense of dissociation or maybe what you're talking about, and is pretty common. Now, a lot of folks with anxiety, when they're uniquely spiked, one of the defense mechanisms that our brain uh, sometimes does is it, it creates this dissociation. It's, it's to kind of serve as this, this helpful barrier between us, our, our character, our, our body, our brain, our, our spirit, whatever you want to call it, from whatever this fear is. And it's just this big emotional barrier, and it can help us from not feeling the, the full brunt of it. Now, some folks will try to get into this space in the course of exposure and response prevention as a way to keep them from feeling um, th- their anxiety. But ultimately, what, that, what that's doing is it's serving as a compulsion of avoidance. So, um, so if, you, if you find yourself doing that intentionally to not feel anxiety, um, I would encourage you to, to, one, let your therapist know about this so that you can practice staying in the moment for longer periods of time, maybe at, at lower levels of anxiety, but um, that they'll know what to do with this, hopefully. But the feeling of dissociation isn't inherently bad, though some folks will hyper-focus on this sense of dissociation. They'll say they feel dissociated for long, long periods of time, which is certainly possible, um, but they'll, they'll, it, this, was, this kind of falls into that sensory mode or OCD category, where it's a hyper-focus on um, one's bodily functions or sensations. Um, so, for example, with um, with sensory motor OCD, people will be very focused on their breathing, or they'll be over-focused on their, their blinking, or they're over-focused on the sensation of their body, or they'll be thinking about their heartbeat, um, and, and just the awareness of that, and too much awareness of it. So, if it is too, uh, an, an, an excessive focus on your bodily sensations, again, the treatment of that is going to be working towards being comfortable with the fact that your body feels that way, and also to disconnect that feeling from the judgment that it's bad, but rather to say, this is the feeling that you have. It's neither good nor bad, but it's the feeling that's going on. It may not be the one that you want to have, and sometimes when you're more connected with your body, you feel a little happier, which is understandable, but it's not bad, it's not awful, and it's certainly not dangerous. It's just kind of inconvenient for us. Now, to the lapses of memory, it's also really common that you and I are going to forget what we do, because you and I are, are doing stuff all day long. You're sitting here listening to this podcast. I'm sitting here recording this podcast, um, and we are connected through time. We're like the uh, we're like the boathouse of audio. All right, that's a side note. So just in advance, if you're really if you're if you're obsessing about lapses of memory, I want you to be aware of whether or not you're doing compulsions to remember exactly what you did or didn't do. This is kind of like a, a this is somewhat related to um, kind of what's called memory hoarding or. Uh, um, or also just trying to remember exactly what you did so that you can know that you didn't do something awful or that you didn't hurt somebody's feelings. And we try to go back in, in our, go back, our, what did I say to this person? Now, who did I talk to next? Now, I drove this place. Did I remember how I turned? Did I run somebody over? Um, was I obeying all the laws? Things like that is, is how our brain can sometimes work. 
But remember, it's extremely common that we forget what we did because, uh, and for a number of reasons. Um, one, we don't remember everything, either because our brain didn't think that whatever we were doing was worth remembering. Our brain somewhat filters out stuff that it, it thinks is important and thinks it's not important, and it's going to then put that through the encoding process, taking from short-term memory into long-term memory. Sometimes things don't make it to long-term memory because it didn't think it was that important. My brain didn't think it was important about how much pepper I put on my eggs this morning. It's just not. Now I remember that I put pepper on my eggs this morning, but how much and in what, uh, in what fashion and what angle, my brain doesn't care. So it's not going to put that into long-term memory. Everything I talked about with my family and friends and clients yesterday, I'm not going to remember each and every little detail. I might remember the general concepts, but I'm not going to remember exactly everything. Now, sometimes things don't make it to long-term encoding because there's a, a, I don't know, a short in the system or just uh, it just didn't make it through the process, but we don't need to be hung up on that too much. Another way that we tend to forget things is when we get caught up in something called procedural memory. Procedural memory is when we take an activity that we're doing and we've, we've chunked the different actions or behaviors within that into kind of a program that our brain tends to run. Uh, driving is this. You hear this a lot with driving is that uh, people will say, man, I don't even know how I got to work today, but I just, I left home and I got here and I don't even remember how I got here. But in the course of our driving, sometimes we will forget what we're doing exactly because we have chunked those actions together. When you get into your car and you sit down, your brain runs a program. You sit down, you put on your seatbelt, you undo the uh, uh, emergency brake, you put the key in, you start the car, maybe you turn the lights on, maybe you turn on the windshield wipers, whatever it is. You have a process. Everyone does. Now, this is highlighted to us when we get into somebody else's car, because someone else's car is going to have a different, slightly different orientation of where things are, where the lights are, where the emergency brake is, how far the seat is. It's all going to feel slightly different. So it takes a little bit more energy for our brain to figure out all those steps and then put them together. Now, if you were to drive that car every single day for a week, by the end of the week, it's going to become second nature to you. And when you get in, if I said, did you do all the things? Did you put on your seatbelt? You'll say, well, yeah. I'll say, no, do you remember exactly how you put the seatbelt on? You might say, no, but I put it on. And it might be because your, putting on your seatbelt was just part of the process. You just put it on. So your brain took all those different steps with uh, uh, getting ready or getting in your car and just chunked that into getting ready in the morning or, or getting, ready for, getting ready to drive your car. Our brain does that with a lot of things, and it tends to forget it. Because, fun fact, your brain and my brain is super duper lazy, and it just doesn't want to focus on stuff. And that's okay. But going back and then spending excessive amounts of trying time to remember everything is usually going to be a waste of time. But these are all great things to ask your therapist on how you can work through tolerance of the fact that you forget stuff. Maybe the fear of what you did during those lapses of memory. Maybe you killed five people in the course of you getting to work and you just forgot about it. And, you know, it happens to, it happens to the best of us, right? So it's something to talk about with them. But uh, I hope I answered your questions, AJ. So, and again, thanks so much for the question. All 
right, this next question comes uh, through Reddit, actually. Uh, and this is from Reddit user TS409. So their question is, I would love to hear about how you handle ERP when your ERP is purely thought-based. I get action-based and compulsion-based scenarios, but I have intrusive thoughts. I'm already exposed to them. They're in my head all the time. I just see examples of exposure therapy targeting the German hand-washing stuff and don't get how it applied to pure O OCD. So this is a great question, and this is a uh, a, a really common and frustrating thing for a, a, a lot, a lot, a lot of people. A lot of times in 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 books about OCD, they're going to put uh, some of these more concrete ones, the hand washing, uh, uh, germ related things. They might put organization in there. They might put hit and run in there. Um, and again, they're also going to put these types of OCD in the media, uh, in uh, TV shows and whatnot, because um, the the purely thought based ones. Um, aren't visually exciting to put in. And the visual ones, um, or the, the thought-based ones, don't really go well uh, with the uh, with the textbooks, textbook examples of OCD. Because uh, again, it wants to be really concrete and really visual. And this is also where the myth of Pure O comes in, is that uh, Pure O as a title, the, the Pure O, for those of you who, uh, who aren't initiated into it, uh, it stands for, or it means pure obsessional. So it's kind of, a, it's, a, it's a misnomer. What the, what the thought behind the name is, is that the person with this form of OCD doesn't have compulsions, or it's the belief that one doesn't have compulsions. Um, and, and that's where the misnomer is, is that they do have compulsions, but they don't have outward compulsions. The compulsions that they're doing are all internal, and the obsessions or the compulsions rather seem like obsessions, because we tend to think the obsession is a thought, and the compulsion is an action, a behavior, an outward thing that we do. Whereas the pure O person, they are doing compulsions, but they are doing them inside their brain. So they might be mentally giving themselves reassurance. They might be mentally reflecting back on previous events. They might be running different scenarios from the past, changing different details about it to see how it changes the way they feel today or how it changes the way that they might respond to an event happening right now, or they might be playing it out in the future. How is that event from the past, if I'd changed those various things, really going to affect my future? Or what are the various possible outcomes Outcomes that happen in the future. Now, all that is, all that is thought based, and they say, "Well, I'm just obsessing about you know my future." Well, yes, you are obsessing about your future, but the amount of time that you're spending thinking about it is the compulsion. What you're doing to try to fix the original thought is the compulsion. Kind of fitting it into that OCD cycle as we talked about, the obsession is, let's just say it's, um, what if um, what if my marriage is going to crumble? What if I don't love my partner? How's that? To make it ROCD uh, example. So what if I don't truly fully love my partner? All right, that's an obsession because that's going to spike anxiety because if I don't truly love my partner, then maybe... I'm going to live the rest of my life having not met the perfect partner. Maybe I'm going to um, maybe I'm going to meet them in ten years from now after I've been married and have kids, and I'm going to blow up my entire marriage and life because I finally finally met the person that I'm supposed to be with. So that's where that fear is. Maybe it's going to be blowing up their life or hurting their feelings or hurting that person's feelings or just the fact that they're wrong. Um, that is going to be the obsession. The obsession spikes anxiety. The compulsion brings down. Anxiety. The compulsion uh, uh, tries to intentionally make you feel better. So that might be 
thinking about all the other people you've dated in the past to think, well, would I have been a better partner with them? Should I, could I have loved that person better? Uh, I might be thinking about your original dates with your partner to see if, um, uh, if there were signs that you should have seen earlier on. Uh, it might be thinking about different qualities that they have and comparing them to other uh, boyfriends or girlfriends to see if you really love this about them, or if maybe you loved this about one of your ex-girlfriends or boyfriends a little bit better. Maybe it's going to be reflecting on into the future. What if I meet my partner, uh, my, my intended partner in the future? Um, maybe I should, maybe it's going to blow up my relationship, right? So how, how, am I going to, how am I going to break it off with them? How am I going to handle it? What am I going to say? All of these things are trying to come to the sense of resolution and comfort for yourself that everything's okay, now, uh, TS409, to, to your point, you're right. You are thinking about that all the time. Our brain is super, super good at giving us uh, obsessions and giving us triggers. Uh, if we're married to our, if we're married to our uh, boyfriend or girlfriend, which is now your husband or wife, um, you live with your trigger all day long, and you see them all the time. So you're you are constantly surrounded by it. So what we're what we're going to call that is a natural exposure, just naturally in the course of you living your life you're going to be triggered to your anxiety. Intentional or active exposures are going to be ones where you go and seek out that fear. So that will be for a separate conversation. So pure O can be dealt with through traditional ERP. So remember, ERP is going to be two different things, exposure and response prevention. So if you are naturally already exposed to your trigger, you can practice response prevention, which is intentionally disengaging from that, that thought that you're having. Noticing how you're trying to solve or resolve or get to a sense of comfort and intentionally choosing to back away from that and shift your attention towards something else, something else of greater value, that is. And remembering that you might not ever get to that answer, and that's okay. It's kind of like the rest of us may not get to that answer. You can also lean into it intentionally. You can do imaginal exposures to your fears and, and writing out the exact thing that you're afraid of. Um, Depending on the, the type of detail you have, I mean, uh, uh, existential OCD is often considered a pure O sort of thing because you're thinking about your life. And by the way, one of the very first episodes of this show uh, is on um, existential OCD. So I would encourage you to find that episode uh, and, and take a listen. And in that, you can think about what it is that makes you feel uncomfortable and go and do that thing. Go, f go, to, go to a place that represents your fear and practice response prevention. Now, another way that we can deal with that and we treat that is through mindfulness-based approaches like acceptance and commitment therapy. So with those, you're going to be accepting the fact that this thought, though not preferred, is just in your head, and that's okay. It's not the end of the world because you can have a thought and do the complete opposite of it. You can have a thought and you can change details of it in your mind. You can think about what your partner looks like, and then you can put a clown wig on him. You can uh, put a Star Trek uniform on him and just notice what that looks like. Now, notice in that that you did have a thought about your partner, and then you changed all these details. Your memories are not premonitions. Your thoughts are not premonitions. They're just thoughts. We can manipulate them, we can change them, and they're not something that we need to be deathly afraid of, but to acknowledge and accept as, as, a, as a byproduct of having that fantastic human brain that you have. Now, if you're concerned about how to apply Pure O to, uh, to OCD, 
maybe something worth asking, um, asking your therapist specifically about their experience with Pure O, what their understanding of Pure O, um, and you might want to give them some details as well. Um, but a uh, but a skilled and experienced OCD specialist is going to have some of these answers. Uh, is going to kind of have an idea about how to uh, a- approach this I- in a way other than just saying get over it or suck it up. Now, something to remember about this, similar to uh, the the germ or contamination fears, you're going to have your thoughts. Those thoughts may just continue to be there because your brain is constantly coming up with these thoughts. The the person with contamination can not go into a public restroom. Sure, they can avoid that. And then if they're, you know, it's, it's out of sight, out of mind, right? But we're always with our brain. We can't run away from it. So acceptance is going to be a large part of that form of treatment, uh, it, depending on what the obsession is. But obsession, uh, but acceptance is going to be really important to think about that your brain does this, and that's okay. Your brain is not your enemy. You are not the enemy of your brain. And you can get used to those thoughts being with you over the course of your life. And have a successful, fantastic, exciting life full of your dreams and goals and values. It's going to be okay. All right. I hope that answers your question. Thanks so much for uh, for asking that, by the way. All right. So for my last question, I'm actually just going to add, answer half of this person's question because uh, I, I emailed them to ask a little bit of clarification about the first question within their two-part question uh, and haven't heard back. So uh, I'm just going to answer this second one for now. So this comes from Mel. So they ask, I'm looking for a therapist in my area and I found a great one by referral, but he had said something to me that I'm not sure is the right way or approach for treatment. In our introduction over the phone, I had said, I know that OCD will never go away, but that there are tools I can use that will help me cope with it. And his response was, oh, we can make it go away for good. I was a little taken aback by that answer. Is this true that it can go away or not? So Mel, that is a that is a great great question. Um, and if if you've listened to my podcast before, I've said things like um, you know anxiety is something that's that's never going to go away, and you're likely to have your thoughts uh, for the rest of your life, or you're going to have forms of those thoughts to certain degrees over the course of your life. But that's okay. You and I have unwanted intrusive thoughts all the time, and you and I have uh, crazy thoughts all the time, but that we don't really care about. And as I answered with my first question, that we're going to fluctuate back and forth from um, uh, in different forms of OCD. Now, th- this person's response, I, my initial knee-jerk reaction to this was, was that this person likely is uh, is a, a, an unexperienced OCD therapist, um, or that they're 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 a little too big for their britches, and they they're they're overextending what they think that they can do for you. I still tend to think that this therapist is a little naive in in what they can do with treatment. I mean, the 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 phrasing of "we can make it go away for good" uh, is is a, is a little troubling um, and, and is a little uh, uh, hopeful, certainly, but I, I think is actually promising a little more than uh, than they can than they can actually produce. Something to remember about anxiety and and certainly OCD is that OCD is a chronic mental health uh, disorder, meaning that it's going to be there in various iterations over the course of one's life. It's a style, it's a pattern of thinking. But again, it's not the end of the world with things. 
I think you're right. Is that there are um, that that while it might might not go away entirely, there are tools that you can use to help cope with it. So I don't want this to sound like you're never going to get over it. You're going to constantly be in this suffering and in pain for the rest of your life. But that you can work with this and have it be extremely manageable. So after I brought this question up to my wife, actually, she's um, she's the smart one here, and she actually brought me down to earth and said, well, you know, there, there, there are a lot more questions to ask about what this person had said. And, and after we had talked a little bit, I, I, I do agree. One of the things that, I'd be, that, that I would love to know about is, what are the methods this guy uh, seems to think could help it make it go away for good? What technique is he using? Uh, is he using cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure and response prevention? Is he using um, is he using various other approaches? Some folks will uh, will treat OCD, I think, inappropriately with a psychodynamic approach. Um, some folks will treat it with biofeedback, and they might think that they can um, eradicate it that way. They might be treating it more from a medical model, so through uh, so through medication or through psychosurgery or through uh, one of the other kind of new new wave approaches that are going to be highly medicalized. Um, and uh, and there, while, while there's certainly a lot of promise for those, um, I think for a lot of the folks that I've talked to, like for some folks who are doing TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation, um, there's a lot of promise for that in terms of its treatment for OCD. However, the the, the clients who I've worked with or spoke with who have had uh, TMS um, or even uh, insulin injection therapy, something like that, I'm forgetting the name of it, um, they they have not been very positive about it, and they haven't really noticed any significant outcomes from it. Um, but this therapist might be, again, very optimistic about what uh, uh, they think they can do for you. So I, I would ask a lot more questions about how they plan on doing that. The other thing to question is, what do they mean by making it go away for good? Do they mean that you are never, ever going to have a feared thought again? Do they mean that you're never going to have obsessional thinking again? Do they mean that you're never going to have a relapse again, meaning that they can treat you pretty effectively to the point where your current fears don't bother you? But does he think that he, you're never going to have a resurgence at some point in your life or that that thought's not going to migrate into something else? So again, I'd, I, I would ask a lot more questions about what, what they mean by making it go away for good. Now, by the way, if this, if this person can make it go away for good, tell that dude to write a book because they're going to be a billionaire and they're going to help millions and millions of people. So, um, you can tell them that. Um, secondly, um, you can ask them, well, if they can make it go away for good, if you do want to work with this person, ask them if they have a warranty because if they can make it go away for good, it's going to be well worth your money and your time. However, if it's not, if, if he says it's, if he's selling you with the promise that it's going to go away for good and it comes back, I'd call in that warranty and uh, either demand more treatment or demand a refund because that's a that's a high bill. Um, I, I have never promised to anybody that we're going to make anxiety go away forever. Um, and in fact, as I've kind of referred, I don't want anxiety to go away forever. It's really helpful for us. If you and I step into the street, it would behoove us to look back and forth. We should have an unwanted intrusive thought about getting run over by a car because that's going to... Um, it's going to motivate us to do a little, a little left and right, a little, little look-see to see if there's a car coming my way that's going to run me over and make me a little, little, little roadkill pancake. Because um, I don't want that personally, but uh, and my brain doesn't want that either. So if I don't have that unwanted intrusive thought about me horrifically dying, that's not going to help me. So 
anxiety can be remarkably helpful. Um, but again, I would ask more information about uh, what this means to help you make a clearer decision. Now, I also don't want to make it sound too pessimistic as if uh, as if you can't ever make progress in treatment. Uh, that's certainly not the case. But what I want to say is that when we're working towards when we're working in doing ERP, we're working in making progress, um, we can't expect that the anxiety is going to completely drop off a cliff. We have to learn some tools and techniques and some, and some approaches to managing your thoughts, to understanding what they are, what role they actually serve in your life, and what relationship you can now have with them and that, that is more beneficial. Because we're not looking for necessarily the eradication of all anxiety. We're looking for better functioning. As I mentioned at the very beginning of the show, what this show is all about, it's about OCD anxiety and getting your life back. Now, getting your life back doesn't always entail getting rid of anxiety. If that is the only goal you have in treatment, though, you've got unrealistic expectations. But if you go in saying, I I know that this anxiety might not go away forever, but I want to try to find a better way to live my life and have a life that's of greater value and of greater functioning than what I currently have. So that might be a, a, a more realistic approach and a more realistic consideration. If you're looking for other therapists out there, uh, you can go to uh, you can go to the website fearcastpodcast.com, and I have a find help uh, section there. Then uh, you can check out there. You can check out the IOCDF. So it's IOCDF.org. It's the International OCD Foundation. They have uh, a, a database of a bunch of therapists that are connected with them. Uh, you can talk to the um, Anxiety and Depression Association of America, the ADAA. Um, again, the American Dodgeball Association of America. They have the worst acronym ever. But or the best acronym ever, depending on your perspective. Um, but there, there are other folks out there who are going to have, I, I think, a more balanced and nuanced view of of what treatment is. So that that was my one main concern. Um, so I, I look forward to hearing your um, the the further detail to the first part of your question. It's in reference to our lizard brain. Uh, so I'll tease that for a future episode. Um, everyone loves our lizard brain, kind of. So. Anyways, um, uh, Mel, thank you so much for that question. All right, everybody, we made it through the question and answer episode. So I'm, I, I am hoping to have more question and answers on future episodes and tying them to uh, uh, individual episodes. If you have questions for a future episode, please feel free to email me. You can email me directly at questions at fearcastpodcast.com. I'd prefer you to go to the website, fearcastpodcast.com, and putting in uh, uh, submitting your question through the form there. Uh, it allows you to, uh, while I am going to ask you for your name and email address, again, none of that information is ever going to go out. And while I would need your real name, I do have a section on there that will allow you to put in whatever name you want me to use. So you can be Stegosaurus, you can be Optimus Prime, uh, you can be Queen Latifah. And by the way, Queen Latifah, if you're listening, um, uh, email me. So if you have questions, go to the website. If you have questions about getting into treatment, again, go to the website and uh, go to the uh, find help link there. So by the way, if you also have any criticism or any uh, uh, second opinions about some of the advice that I'm giving on uh, the podcast, feel free to uh, send me an email or uh, message me there um, and, uh, and let me know what that is. I might uh, uh, add those as an addendum or as a correction on a future episode too, because I ain't perfect and uh, I might have missed something. So if you have some insight, I would love to hear about it. 
So please feel free to find me over at Facebook. You can find me also over at Instagram. I post some, some things from time to time. My Instagram handle is Fearcast Podcast. I know, not very creative, but you know what? I'm consistent. That's got to count for something. Um, so lastly, and as always, please remember that the Fearcast is not a substitute for psychotherapy. If you have questions about finding therapy or need to get into your own therapy, go over to the website, go to the Find Help link, and uh, you can find some good help there. And as always, until next time, take a risk, challenge yourself, and do not take your brain too seriously. Bye.